0: That note, who's ready for the word? Awesome. So pastoral confession. Can I do that? All right, never mind, never mind. No, that does not feel right, okay. Can I do that? So Easter and Christmas, you think, oh, easiest ones in the world for the pastor, right? I mean, everybody knows about Easter and Christmas, to be very frank with you, these are, the, these are the two messages of the year that I get the most nervous about. I mean, I think when I approach it, it's so big, it's so amazing and overwhelming that it just always causes me to shrink down and realize the humanness that, I have, that I'm a man. And, and it, this message is so big and, and so amazing to bring it forth in a fresh way, which it's meant to do to bring power and transformation into our lives. It's something that only God can do. And and so I pray that today uh, you are impacted, that the word of God comes forth and ministers to you, encourages you, and directs you in your path because it does that in a way that nothing else possibly can. All right? So uh, if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to the book of... 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So now that I've been transparent, everybody just look at me say, just chill. It's all good. Just chill. All right. Okay. All right. 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 Sounds good. All right. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 12. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And get this, and if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we've testified of God that He raised up Christ. And if He did not raise Him up, in fact, the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. And then also, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. I chose these passages to begin and open our Easter story because... Frankly, the story of Easter is about the crucifixion and resurrection of the Messiah, of Jesus. That, that was his identity and that is the work that he completed. Now the Apostle Paul, sometime after Christ's death, he's having this exchange in his letter and his words to the people at Corinth here. And what he's saying is there's this kind of debate About the fact that Jesus really was the Messiah and that he really did raise from the dead after he was crucified. And evidently there were people who kind of doubted that. There were a lot of people, and that's even the case to this day in the Jewish culture, that would say, Jesus, good guy, good man, good prophet, did some awesome things. But there is that there is a big difference. In looking at Jesus that way versus looking at him as the risen Lord, as the one who actually died and was risen from the dead and seen in resurrected form. And Paul was making this huge case. He's saying, look, you don't get it. It's not not good enough. We can't sit around and talk about how Jesus was a good guy and these are good teachings if we're not going to embrace the fact that he really was the Messiah and that he really did raise from the dead. Because if that isn't true, if that really didn't happen, then none of this even matters anymore. He's saying It's all futile and your faith, it's, it's in vain. You're only going to have faith while you're in this life and you have no hope for anything after this. If this message of the cross, of Jesus crucified and raised from the dead, if this isn't real in your heart, then you have not laid hold of the hope of eternity and that which Christ suffered and died for you to have. You're missing the picture entirely. You're not getting the full thing that Jesus has died for you to have. And I would say that today to us, that if we recognize that this story is true... If we recognize that Jesus really was the Messiah, he really was raised from the dead, then, guys, what else could possibly be more important than you living the life that Jesus has died for you to have, that he's called you to? What could possibly be more paramount than that right there? And Paul's saying, if that's not true and we're all getting together for church and talking about Jesus, then we're just a bunch of crazy people. Right, I mean, look at your neighbors say you're just crazy. Some of you enjoyed that way too much. <laughs> like, I've been telling you that for years. I mean, it's a good thing he's saying it now, right? I mean, then, then, what reason are we even here for? But if this really is true, then we have discovered the answer, the thing that is most paramount in the world for all of us to live according to. Each and every single day. I love the way C.S. Lewis put it. C.S. Lewis said, if Christianity isn't true, then it's of no importance at all. If Christ wasn't the Messiah, then it's of no importance at all. Christianity doesn't, doesn't mean anything. If it is true, then it is of infinite importance. The only thing that it cannot be is moderately important. So I'll ask you this today as we open up into our Easter message, Guy. I I wasn't singling you out. (laughs) The Lord works the way the Lord works. I'll ask you this question today, everybody. (laughs) Does your life really reflect this? Are you living your life in a way where the fact that Jesus is the risen Lord has got a hold of you And is driving everything in your life. Is it paramount? Is Jesus, or is he an Easter thing? Is he a Sunday thing? When in fact, he really wants to be everything to us. He's not competing for second place. He's already achieved the victory. He is preeminent, which means he is above all and he is first in everything. He will never take second place. And He won't settle for that in your life. If you want the abundant life that Jesus spoke about, that He came and died for you to have, then you have to sell out to Him. You have to surrender, and you have to let Him become first in your life. And the revelation that Jesus died and He was raised from the dead, defeated death, that revelation is the basis to which everything from Scripture flows out of. Every message we preach, Every ounce of faith we have, every victory we achieve, it is all on the foundation of Christ crucified and resurrected. That's what it's all about. And we've got to see at this time at Easter, like this isn't a message for once a year. This is the message of our life (laughs) every day. And so what I want to do is I want to take you through today the Easter story. And I want to kind of open up to you what I see as like five different scenes or settings along the way in this story that is the greatest story that's ever been told, right? I mean, there is nothing that we can watch or read or see that will ever be greater than this story of what Jesus did. And so we'll open up. The first scene is the scene we call the triumphal entry. All right, this is the time... You like that? That's good, yeah. Uh Uh-huh. This is the time where Jesus, about a week before the Passover, before he would be crucified, comes entering into the city of Jerusalem, otherwise known as Palm Sunday, the Sunday before Easter. And it's called that, why is it called Palm Sunday? Because when Jesus was coming into the city, it says that he went and told his disciples to go and fetch a donkey or colt. And that they would bring it back to him so that he could ride into the city. So they went and did that. And as he was coming into the city, the people were laying palm branches all over the road. Along this road known as Palm Sunday Road. When we were in Israel, we actually walked down through it. You go through the Garden of Gethsemane and back through the valley up the other side and into the eastern side of the city. This was the trail that he came in on. And as he was doing that, all these palm branches were laid all over the road. Because palm branches were a symbol of victory. When kings would go out to battle with their armies and they would achieve a victory, when they would come back, all the people of the city would be throwing palm branches and laying them all out to signify the victory that had been achieved. And they were doing this almost like prophetically, right? Declaring that this victory was getting ready to come. And they were yelling, Hosanna, son of David, glory to God in the highest. Hosanna... Means save us or savior. And it, it was like they were implying that Jesus was coming in to save them. So they recognized that there was something kingly about him, but they actually were seeing a completely different picture. Because what they thought he was coming to do was to save them in a way from military in a military type of campaign. They thought he was going to help them defeat the Roman occupancy in Jerusalem and that they would no longer be controlled by the Roman government. So they they were looking at him, Hosanna, save us, king, branches. like He's going to come in and achieve a military victory and we're going to be free from Rome after this. Now a week later, when he's on trial and they're trying to figure out what's going to happen, these same people get this, are yelling the words, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. You see, I think at some point they recognize, like, this guy's going to be killed. He's been arrested, now he's in chains, like, he's going to be put to death. And all of a sudden they turn their tune. Here's the point of that. They were looking for God to come and look the way they wanted him to look. They had already defined what they were looking for, what the conditions of their king were going to look like. If he didn't do this, he's not our king. And little did they know, everything that they did with the palm branches, everything they said, Hosanna, was absolutely prophetic and true. It was just a victory that Christ was getting ready to achieve that was in the spiritual and the eternal realm, not in the physical realm, that they couldn't possibly even fathom at that time. And when Jesus didn't look like the way they wanted him to look, when he didn't do for them what they wanted him to do, they abandoned him. They turned their eyes, they turned their back to him and they went a different direction. You think I, I think too many times we try to set, we try to negotiate with God or people that maybe aren't you know, believers and they're trying to decide, am I going to do this Jesus thing? It's like, okay, you know, Jesus, if, if you'll fix my money problems, if you'll fix my relationship problems, okay, Lord, let's see, if you'll do these things, Jesus, then okay, you know, I'll follow you. But that's conditional, just like these people here. And at the end of the day, their faith had nothing solid to stand on because they hadn't fully put their trust in Jesus to the point where it's, we're going to trust you no matter what it looks like no matter what it is, because we believe you know better than we know in what you want to do and what you're trying to do in our lives. So if it looks the way we want it to look, great, hallelujah, we'll shout. If it doesn't look the way we want it to look, then we will just resign ourselves to your will, and we will trust you anyway and still call you King, Lord, Savior, and God in the most high place. Amen? And so we move from the triumphal entry... Oh, let me just point this out real quick. So he comes riding in on this donkey. One of the things I want to show you, and time won't permit me to even come close to doing all of this thoroughly, but I want to show you how Jesus' work that he did, especially in this last week, fulfilled tons of prophecies from hundreds, sometimes even over a thousand years before that. Prophecies that were spoken of by God speaking through men talking about the Messiah that would come, what he would look like and what he would do. And I read a study one time, this was done in Pasadena, California, by the chairman or professor of mathematics and astronomy at this college. So he was a pretty smart dude. And he said, you know, they counted that there was like 456 prophecies roughly in the Old Testament that talked about the Messiah. And when we see those, I mean, Jesus fulfilled every single one of them. But this study that was done by this mathematician astronomer said that if one, the, the possibility of one man in his lifetime achieving even eight of those prophecies, because they couldn't even do the math beyond that, the possibility of one man achieving even eight, it would be like taking silver dollars and spreading them over the entire earth, covering every square inch of landmass on the ground, and then stacking them 120 feet high in the air marking one silver dollar, blindfolding a man, dropping him on the earth, and telling him to go find the silver dollar that was marked. That would be the same mathematical probability. I double-checked his math. He was right, okay? (laughs) Just so you know. So listen to this. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Five, six hundred years before Jesus comes riding in on the donkey. This is what Zechariah prophesies. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. As he came riding in, I mean, he was literally fulfilling a scripture prophecy from hundreds of years earlier in the exact way that he did that. And so he comes in to the city, And then we move from there into the next scene, which is the garden. The garden of Gethsemane. So this was the night after they celebrated the Last Supper, and they went out into the garden, and Jesus went to pray because he knew that his impending death was upon him. It says that while he was in the garden, that he began to pray to the Father. And he said, Father, please take this cup from me nevertheless not my will but yours this is very powerful because in this moment we see the authenticity of our Savior that he was fully God never separated from his deity yet at the same time he was fully man he was incarnated and in the flesh why is that important because the Bible says that he came as a man And that he was tempted in all things, even as we are or ever will be, yet he was without sin. And the only way that his blood could qualify as a sinless, unblemished, spotless lamb is if he was sinless in the way he lived his life. And so as he's in the garden, he's experiencing the agony and the pressure and the pain, and he has this opportunity to just totally circumvent the cross, the pain that awaits him, Yet he says, nevertheless, your will, not mine. And, he's, and he resigns that fleshly temptation and lets that kneel to what the work that the Spirit is wanting to do, which is the same picture that we get in the way God calls us to live in our lives. The flesh is willing, or the, the flesh is weak, but the spirit, the spirit is willing, right? We need to let what God wants always take front and center stage, no matter how hard or difficult it can be. And so he's in the garden, he's praying. And it says, this is crazy, it says that he actually sweat drops of blood. He was so much in agony and pressure and the, just, the weight of this moment was closing in on him. And he was literally sweating drops of blood. Luke gives us that account in his gospel. Luke was a physician, so you see a lot of kind of medical uh, viewpoints from his account. And I looked this up and studied this a number of years ago. It's an actual thing that can happen. It's called hematidrosis. And it's when the body is under such pressure, such agony, that the capillaries, blood vessels, on the surface of the skin, they actually begin to dilate, Jess. And when they dilate, they burst, and the blood mixes in with the sweat, and it comes out of the pores. Now let me ask you a question. How many of you have had a bad day before? <laughs> How many of you are having a bad day right now? I mean, I mean, maybe I'm sitting next to you, you know? I mean. Okay. How many of you have had such a bad day? It was so bad that you literally sweat drops of blood. Look around. Nobody. You see, Je- what's the point of that? Jesus can relate to every pain or suffering or difficult situation that you've ever gone through or ever will go through. He is the most qualified to walk through every valley that you will ever experience. He's the one that wants to be alongside of you, walking with you every single step of the way. And he can relate. He's not some God in a distant land that we can't connect with You know, that's an agnostic point of view. There's a God, but we can never know him. He comes right alongside of you in relationship. It says he wants to be the friend that will stick closer than a brother. And he knows what it's like, and he can lead you through victoriously. As he's in this garden, the garden is Gethsemane. Think about this. In the garden of Gethsemane, that word, Gethsemane, means oil press there's a bunch of olive trees in the garden, still to this day, hundreds, they say some are even a thousand years old. And they take the olives and then they press them, they crush them with intense, extreme pressure. And when they do, there is a valuable oil that is extracted out of the olive. But the amount of oil compared to the waste of the olive that's left is pretty minimal. Most of the most of everything, like 90% is the olive that's left, and a very small portion is the oil that's extracted. But they can't get the valuable oil unless the olive comes under intense pressure and begins to be crushed. You see, Jesus was experiencing intense pressure in the oil press, Gethsemane. He was experiencing it so much that the priceless oil of the blood of Jesus was already beginning to ooze out and come forth as a foreshadow of that which was yet to come. That oil was coming out and it was only through that precious blood, that valuable oil that we could have the atonement that he was there to bring. And he's in the garden and we know that all of a sudden the soldiers show up to arrest him because who sold him out? Yeah, thank you. One person in this whole place knows that. Okay. So Judas sold him out for 30 pieces of silver, a slave's price. Judas traded his, whole, his life, his eternal life, so Satan entered him and had his way with him. He traded his life for the price of a slave. He became a slave to sin and died in that, in that, uh, in that slavery. What a shame. So Judas sells him out. Soldiers come. They arrest Jesus. They show up, and good old Peter, man. Dude, I can relate to Peter. He's zealous, he's excited, but man, does he make a mess of things most of the time, right? Peter whips out his sword, and he slices off the ear of the servant of the high priest named Malchus. So Malchus's ear falls to the ground, and Jesus is like, whoa, 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 Peter, Peter, whoa, slow down, Peter. Peter's like, I'm going to fix this, Jesus. I'm going to take control. I'm going to make sure that we get this right. Nobody's taking you. Jesus is like, Peter, Peter, slow down. <laughs> it's for this reason that I've come. Uh, I'm here for this, Peter, okay? Let them be. And Peter's all, oh, you know, and Jesus is like, walks over, bends down, and says that he heals Malchus's ear. He heals it. I think one of the questions I can't wait to figure out when I get to heaven is, you know, was it a new ear or did he put the old one back on? I'm just saying, like, did, he, did the dude get a backup ear, you know? But here you go, like, if that happens again, I'm going to be gone, so just here, put that one in your back pocket on later, you know? So Jesus heals the ear. And then this amazing, oh, this is like one of the most powerful points in all the Bible for me. The, the soldiers they, they're looking at, it and she's like, Who are you looking for? And they're like, Jesus of Nazareth is who we're looking for. And he said, I am he. Now, when he said, I am he, it says that all the soldiers, all of the, the campaign that came to arrest him. They were all literally knocked backward with a force, knocked up off of their feet and fell and hit the ground. They were disheveled. They were distraught. I mean, it literally was like a wall just smashed into them and knocked them all down. That's how powerful these words were. Now, listen to this. When you read the English Bible, Jared, your English translation, it says, I am he. When you read it in the Greek, it says, ego, I mean which is just, I am. Let me remind you, when Moses was speaking to God and God was sending him to go deliver the people out of Egypt, Moses said, who should I tell him to send me? He said, tell them I am. Which means in that statement, I am, if I am God, fully God, then everything about the quality, the nature, the characteristics, the attributes, every part of God is encompassed in that one statement and it was so full of power when Jesus announced it I am boom it knocked every one of them down to their feet they couldn't even they started to get back up <laughs> i love jesus he says now what did you what are you, who are you looking for again i mean i'd be like no, don't answer that do not answer that just come with us <laughs> he says i am listen guys the bible says jesus said my words are spirit And they are life. The word of God is right here. It says that this is the living word of God. So the life of God is in this, which means the I am, the full quality and attribute nature of God power is in this word. So when we declare the word in faith over our lives and in our life, we are speaking something that literally interrupts in the spiritual realm and can push back the forces of hell and darkness in our life when we speak those into the environment around us. And Jesus just knocked them all down. And then they got back up and then he allowed them to be he allowed himself to be taken, and it says all of the disciples at that moment fled from him. They, just, they ran and forsook him. And he, had pro, he, had, he said to them just that earlier that they would at the last supper. He said, you all forsake me. Remember? And Peter's like, no way, not me, Lord. No, you know, not going to happen. And he's, you know, the one that denied him three times, we know. But there's an ancient prophecy that said, strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. And in this moment, once again, we see another fulfillment of prophecy that comes forth in the way the stage is set. So Jesus goes from here in the garden, and the next scene that we move to is the trial. And I'll just say a couple of things about this, about the trial, is it really wasn't much of a trial, right? Because Jesus was actually never convicted. I mean, he was never convicted of anything. He went before Herod, he went before Pilate. I mean, there's like three different times and and never convicted. And in the midst of this, it says that Herod and Pilate, you know, Pilate was Rome, Herod was the Jews. It says that they were enemies and then through this whole experience with Jesus, they actually became friends. And you just read over that sometimes, no big deal, whatever, you know, a little detail. But that hit me one day. It's like, the Bible says evil company corrupts good habits. It says, if you walk with wise men, then you'll become wise, but a companion of fools will suffer great harm. It, be careful who you hang around. You know, really pay attention, be prayerful, let God have a say in who your close relationships are. I mean, yes, we're meant to reach the world, interact with the world, and touch the world, but who we have close in our lives, who the iron is that's supposed to be sharpening us, we need to, be ver- we need to be ver- put a lot of value on those decisions right there. Because evil company corrupts good habits. So then the Pharisees and the priests that are trying to get this trial on the way for Jesus, they're trying to move this thing along. It says when they began to take him to Pilate, as they're moving through the city, they escorted him to Pilate through the praetorium and into the praetorium, which was the place where the Gentiles or non-Jews were hanging out. So the priests and the Pharisees wouldn't go in there. This is crazy, because they were waiting. That night for them was Passover. That was going to be the Passover meal. It says they didn't go into the praetorium because there were non-Jews, Gentiles, and if they had contact with them, they would be considered ceremonially unclean, and then they wouldn't be able to partake of the Passover. So they didn't want to be unclean, right? They, They didn't want to corrupt themselves, so they stayed out of the praetorium. But look at the just stark hypocrisy here. Yet at the same time, they think that they're staying clean, they're staying uncorrupted, yet they're getting ready to put an innocent man to death for a crime he never did commit, and he's the savior of the world. I mean, is the hypocrisy not just like glaring? But look, we can often be blind to our own hypocrisy sometimes, can't we? That's why the spirit of God, we need to allow the wisdom of God to inspect our heart and to reveal those things which are in us. I mean, only God can peer into the heart of a man. And we need to allow him the opportunity and permission to do that in our lives so that we are not blinded and have blinders on to things that Jesus is trying to get us to see that we may be missing, right? But they were completely blinded to this. And so after the, the trial is over and they say he's guilty, they're going to sentence him. The first thing they do is they take him to be beaten and scourged. Now, a Roman scourging is perhaps one of the most violent forms of torture and punishment that you could possibly imagine. I mean, they have this wooden handle, but there's these long ropes. There's usually like maybe eight or ten of these ropes that are coming off of there. And at the end, there's these razor-sharp-like claws that are just, I mean, they'll slice you. You just touch it. And they would take these things, and they would slap on the prisoner all over their body. And they would rip the flesh and they would do that. They, they wanted to make sure that they did it enough and long enough to where they opened things up where they could literally see like the veins and the ligaments and the sinus and all that inside there. That's how they knew they, they had done it enough, which was another prophecy that was fulfilled because it says, I believe, in the book of Isaiah that whenever he would be punished, that they would literally begin to rip the hair out of his beard through the punishment that he would endure. And so... All these things are, are kind of mounting up. And then they, after the scourging is done, he carries his cross and he's, he's walking up to Calvary, the mountain where he's going to be crucified. Remember, the, he was like the lamb led to the slaughter, right? And he's carrying his cross and he's heading up there. And as he gets up there, they, they get to the top of the mountain. And when they crucify him, they drive these stakes into his hands and into his feet. So that he's on the cross and then they lift the cross up and he's up there in the air. The Bible said they looked up upon him who they were torture punishing and they looked up there and this time is going by and they wanted to get this thing on and over with. There were two other prisoners who were being crucified with Jesus that day and a lot of times if they wanted to move this thing along they came along and they broke the legs of the prisoners so that they couldn't hold themselves up and they would literally suffocate to death faster. And so they came along, and whenever they saw Jesus, I guess it appeared that he was already dead, because instead of breaking his legs, they took a spear and they stuck him in the side. And when they did, it says that blood and water both came out, which is a sign that that death has already occurred. And so when we look at that, we see that he was pierced for our transgressions, pierced through, And and bruised for our iniquities. He was suspended up and they looked upon him who they were uh, punishing. And it says that because they stuck the spear in his side and the blood and water came out, they never broke his legs. No bone in his body was broken. Do you remember the spotless, unblemished lamb? And when they prepared the Passover lamb, they could break no bones. Listen to this. John chapter 19, verses 36 and 37 for these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. There are several prophecies in the book of Psalms about that. And then verse 37, and again, another scripture says, they shall look upon him whom they pierced. Multiple prophecies in the Old Testament about that as well. Does this build your faith a little bit? I mean, think about this. If he would have been put to death by the Jews. They didn't crucify. They only stoned. So the fact that he lived when he did, the Roman you know, uh, army and nation wasn't even a thought back in the days when these people were prophesying this. They, they probably didn't even think about crucifixion, yet they're speaking of a death prophetically that Jesus fulfills to a T in the way that it gets carried out. And the, and the Romans were the ones that had to sentence him to the death of crucifixion because they were in control over the area and everything comes to be. This is what really blows me away. While Jesus, the lamb of God, is being crucified on the cross and his body and blood are being given up, at the same time we know because the priests they says that they didn't go to the praetorium because they didn't want to get defiled because they were going to eat the passover that night. Well, that night would have been the passover meal that evening. So before that evening, guess what they did during the day? They killed the lamb and prepared the lamb for the Passover meal. I mean, literally, while lambs are being slaughtered in Jerusalem for the Passover meal, Jesus, the Lamb of God, is being killed for the sins of the world on the cross. If that doesn't just blow you away in your chair today, I can't say anything else that will. To me, that just absolutely... astonishes me that the Lamb of God was actually fulfilling all of these things that the Bible had been speaking of and leading up to for so many years. He's on the cross. It says that one of the two thieves asked Jesus to forgive him. And what did Jesus say to him? He said, this day, I'll tell you this day, that you will be with me in paradise. This thief who was guilty of crime, worthy of execution, From all indication, this this guy was guilty and deserved to be on the cross for what he did. And and yet he asked Jesus to forgive him. He sees the Messiah and asks him to forgive him. And Jesus says to him, today, this day, you will be with me in paradise. You know what that tells me? The arm of the Lord is never too short to save. Never. We tend to think, man, I'm kind of like, I've messed up too much I've did too many bad things. Yeah, I can't, God can't forgive me for this. Look, forgiveness is unconditional and Jesus doesn't compare sins. Yeah, he isn't ranking your sin according to somebody else's sin. There is just sin and we are all guilty of it and we all need to be cleansed of it and we all need to be forgiven of it. And when the, the thief on the cross genuinely repents and asks for forgiveness, Jesus says, no problem, no problem. You want it? You got it. You'll be with me today in paradise because I'm the Messiah. You just trusted and had faith in me. I'm going to forgive you of your sin. Wow, unbelievable. And so in the moment of this, it says that after he was done, he breathed his last breath, gave up his spirit. His spirit leaves his body. And he said the words, it is finished. And when he said those words, a massive earthquake occurred. A massive earthquake. It says that it shook the ground. It ripped the rocks of the earth, ripped open. It says the veil of the temple was torn in two where the holy of holies and the presence of God was behind the veil and only the high priest could go behind there once a year. All of a sudden now Jesus just made a statement. That veil, that's torn. Presence of God is now coming out. There's a new temple. It's your body. The Holy Spirit's going to occupy that. So now the presence of God is there with you always from this point on. The whole condition has just changed. Jesus changed everything. And so he says, it has finished this huge earthquake. I mean, can you imagine the Roman soldiers, what they were thinking? Uh, think we messed up (laughs) and it says they looked on and said truly this was the son of god they testified to that after they saw and then it says when those rocks burst open they ripped in half that there were actually bodies of saints who had already died that came out of the graves and walked in the city and the streets and appeared to many some people just overlooked that whole part of the story man that just blows me away That The people were coming up out of the graves because Jesus had just went into the heart of the earth, the belly of the earth, and he had just defeated death. Oh, Hades, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? And there's people literally coming out of the graves who had died in faith and now going to be with the Father in his abode in heavenly realm, which we did not have access to prior to the cleansing work of Jesus' blood on the cross. Amazing. Absolutely Amazing. And so after the crucifixion, we know they put his body in the tomb and that three days goes by. So the next scene that we go to after crucifixion is the resurrection. And so Mary Magdalene, which this is amazing, Mary Magdalene was the first person that resurrected Jesus appeared to. Did you know that? Mark 16. They appeared to tons of people. Mary Magdalene was the very first one. Who was Mary Magdalene? She was a prostitute had seven demons that Jesus had to cast out of her. If that ain't a picture of redemption and, and the unconditional love of Jesus for all who confess him, I don't know what is. She's the first one that got to see resurrected Jesus. So Mary and, and the other Mary, it says they ran to the tomb, and when they got there, you know they had the soldiers guarding the tomb. It says they rolled the stone and sealed the tomb. I mean, this would be no small matter to get back in here. And so Mary and Mary get to the tomb, and there's a second earthquake a second one. And this time the earthquake is caused because it says an angel from heaven descended down and literally rolled the stone away from the tomb. And when he rolled the stone away from the tomb, there was a massive earthquake. And then Mary and Mary showed up and the angel is standing there. It said that his face was shining as lightning and his clothes were white as snow and that the guards were literally laying there like they were dead. They were so traumatized, so in shock and fear that they literally looked more like they were dead than they were alive. And do you know what the angel said to Mary? This is unbelievable, one of the most powerful verses in all of the Bible. I know I say that a lot, but whatever. <laughs> Just saying, okay. Uh, the angel says, why... Are you looking for the living among the dead? He's not here. He is risen. And folks, this is what becomes the crux of our entire faith, of our entire hope, of our entire expectation of glory that's yet to come, is that statement right there. He is not here. He is risen. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? He's alive. He is alive, and we become alive when his spirit comes to live on the inside of us, which happens the moment we receive Christ, and his blood washes us clean. And he appeared to many, it said, after that, his disciples. He showed up to Thomas in a room, and you remember Thomas? He didn't believe. And Jesus said, okay, Thomas, I'll tell you what. Come here. Come here, Thomas. Put your hands in the holes. Stick your finger in the side where the spear was, Thomas. This is resurrected Jesus, defeated death, right? Death couldn't hold him, and now he's alive. And it's Thomas. Stick your finger in here. Thomas sees. He says, okay, I believe, Lord. And as Jesus said something to Thomas, he said, it's good that you see and that you believe. But greater is he who doesn't see and yet still believes. The essence of Faith. Folks, many times we will not see or understand all that God is up to or doing. That is not a requirement for faith. Faith believes even when it doesn't see in the natural. Because it knows what it trusts in beyond the natural and the spiritual. And we live our life that way. And that's how we see the power and transformative work of God continuing to happen and have its way in and through our lives and then after that it says that in the final part after 40 days of appearing to people it says at one point he appeared to over 500 men first Corinthians 15 read that he appeared to over 500 men at one time in resurrected form this went on for like 40 days and then finally at the end of the 40 days Jesus is on the Mount of Olives with his disciples and people outside the city resurrected Jesus and it says, then he is, they were asking him, so are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel now, Lord? Is it going to happen here? Is this when you're going to do it? And he's like, it's not for you to know times or hours or seasons. Uh, and then whew, he ascends into heaven after he gave him the commandment to go and preach the gospel to all the nations and set people free. That was, the, that was what he left us with. And he ascends into heaven. And as he did, and the skies opened, and Jesus went and sat down at the right hand of the Father, where he's still reigning from today. The angels appeared, and they said to the disciples, why are you marveling? What are you looking up here at? The same Jesus that you just saw ascend into the clouds will return in like manner as you saw him leave. Listen to this. He's on the Mount of Olives, and he ascends and the clouds open into the sky. Last scene is Jesus. That's to be continued, by the way. That's part two. That's coming. Can't see that today. You can get a picture of it. He's on the Mount of Olives, he ascends into the clouds. The Bible says in Revelation chapter 19 that when Jesus returns, the clouds will rip open and he will come riding in on a white horse and all the saints clothed in fine linen behind him and with him, the armies of God. His eyes will be like fire and his robe will be dipped in blood and the, the skies will rip open and he will return And when he returns, listen to this, Mount of Olives ascended, right? Sky ripped open. Now the sky rips open. Here he comes back on the white horse. It says in Zechariah 14 that there will be a massive earthquake. Again, an earthquake. What's up with earthquakes, right? Like, you know, anyway. So a massive earthquake. It says that the Mount of Olives is ripped in half and that the Lord's feet will come down and stand upon the Mount of Olives. Where he leaves he shall return, and he will overlook the earth. When he, here's the important point. When he came the first time, we as Christians believe in a first and second advent, a first and second coming. When he came the first time, he came to seek and save that which was lost. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, whoever believes in him will not perish, to have everlasting life. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Salvation was the plan. Saving. Grace, that's what he brought the first time, not condemnation. When he returns the second time at the end of the age, he brings judgment. That's when he brings judgment. And the eternal condition of all souls is settled. We will spend eternity in one of two places. We will either be with him or we will be away from him. And all of that hinges upon a decision that each and every one of us make to accept Was he who he said he was? Was he really who he said he was? Did he really raise from the grave? Was he really resurrected? If so, folks, I started with this, I'll end with this. What is possibly more important than for you to know that and to live your life from that place where that actually drives everything? You see, when Jesus came, they weren't ready for him. They thought they were, but they weren't because they were looking for something different. They wanted something different. They they didn't like what he was doing. They wanted him to do something else. And so they missed it, except for those who who gave and surrendered and accepted him for who he was. Let me ask you this as we close today. Are you prepared to let Jesus mess with you? Are you prepared to allow him to come in and interrupt your life right now? It's never convenient. It's never a perfect set of circumstances. We don't get to say, I'll be ready at a certain time. Look, you're never promised tomorrow. You don't know. We have to say, am I going to allow Jesus to come in And at this place I'm in right now, he's tugging on my heart and say, okay, Lord, I open the door, I give you access, come in, mess with me, change my life, do whatever you need to do, Lord, I'm not going to set any conditions on this, I'm just going to let you in, and I know that if you mess with me, it's going to be for my good, because does he ever have anything planned for you but good? Never, anything but good. So if he's messing with us, it's for our good we need to be messed with. But we be at a place in our life many times. I like this. So I want this. So I, this is kind. Of, ah, I ain't got time for Jesus right now. Maybe next year. You know, some people are here today. Like, dude, I just wanted to come to Easter because I was supposed to. And now you're saying Jesus is gonna mess. Ah, man, you're just messing it all up. <laughs> ah, dude, I'm just trying to introduce you to the greatest life you could ever know. I'm just trying to introduce you to the one that you need to know that you need to live for, that you need to walk with, who's going to give you joy and peace and hope beyond anything this world could ever offer you. It's all perishing. It's all temporal, Temporal, it's earthly treasure. It's fading today. It's a vapor. The flower fades, the grass withers, but the word of God, it stands forever. That's where you got to put your hope. That's where you got to put your faith. It's the only solid rock foundation that you can ever stand on. And if you'll do that, I promise you, You may not always understand what's going on. You may not always know what he's up to. But as long as you give him permission to come in and work and mess with you and allow the reality of the risen Lord, the true Messiah, the creator of heaven and earth who has a plan for your life, to be the one who's in control, there's no greater life that you could ever know. It won't be easy, but it is the greatest life that we could ever live and it's what God is inviting us into.